Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Totally football show. Today, England, Italy at Wembley. Italy's players hoping to beat the odds and get their account open early and meanwhile do well in the game too. We ran up all the qualifying news. Scotland at the Euros. Wales on top of the world looking down on Croatia. Plus, man tries to buy quarter to get into club in Manchester. We look at what Sir Jim Ratcliffe's real impact will be. And will United just say no? All of that and perhaps more in this Totally Football show. Monday 16th of October, big day in football, a big day in the Totally Football Show studio, as we're joined by Tim Spears. Hi, Tim. Hi, James. All right. Jack Lang's with us. Good morning. Woo. And Tom Williams. Hello, James. Whoa. What's congratulations in Welsh, Tom? Longer farqueadai. I mean, easy on the congratulations, mm. because we haven't secured anything yet. But, but yes, but. A, a seismic win for wow. Wales last night. We've got James Horncastle come, uh, well, on the line a little bit later on, but plenty of Wales chat. Mm. Oh, yeah. Big weekend in international football with France, Belgium and Portugal booking their places uh, to the uh, tournament next summer in Germany. Also, Turkey Sunday night sealing their spot with that big 4-0 win over Latvia. And Scotland. Also on Sunday, seeing their place confirmed when their rivals Norway lost against Spain. And oh yeah, Spain booked their place with that victory too. Well, lots of exciting points about all those games, but I want to talk about Wales first of all. Here's some Welsh. Dan James. Wilson! Wilson! What were they saying there, Tom? Describing uh, Harry Wilson's second goal of the mm. 2-1 win over Croatia. Right. It, it, nothing is settled yet, but compared to how you felt the last time we were talking about Wales and their prospects, you thought it was all over. I've scarcely felt less optimistic before a game than I did last night because Wales' qualification hopes did not look particularly promising um, and we knew pre-game that to stand any chance of qualifying automatically... We would need to beat Croatia. Ranked number six in the world. Number six in the world. Top three at each of the last two World Cups. And albeit missing several key players with their formidable Modric, Brozovic, Kovacic midfield trio still intact. Mm. Josko Gvardiol at the back. So a very um, dangerous Croatia team. Uh, and Wales needing to beat Croatia and Armenia and Turkey to stand any chance of, of qualifying automatically. Obviously, no Gareth Bale because he has since retired. No Joe Allen. He has retired from international football. Uh, Aaron Ramsey injured. Brandon Johnson not there. Right. So, it, th- so how th- did they do it? I mean, with the the most unexpectedly brilliant performance, there's been a lot of talk on Welsh football Twitter of the last time Wales played this well in a big game. And I think you probably have to go back to the quarterfinal win over Belgium at Euro 2016 in terms of beating one of the world's best teams in a 
competitive match and in a must-win competitive match in a game that Croatia really couldn't afford to lose mm. because Wales have now leapfrogged Croatia in the group um, to put themselves you know, in control of their own destiny. Um, and yeah, a very sort of mature performance, a kind of medium block, let Croatia have the ball, which is, you know, what Croatia always want to do uh, with that, particularly with that with that midfield that I mentioned before and sort of kept them at arm's length quite comfortably and then just very blatantly hit Kiefer Moore with long balls from the back from the goalkeeper David Brooks who was absolutely brilliant and Harry Wilson who was man of the match with two goals running off Kiefer Moore and that's that's basically where the, where the victory came from. And Croatia, apart from the last 10 minutes where it got a little bit wobbly, and Danny Ward, who hasn't played a minute of club football this season, really sort of stood up to the mark, claimed every ball that arrived in his six-yard box. And all of a sudden, you know, Wales have beaten one of the best teams in the world and another two victories and will have qualified. Right, so you need to win away against Armenia yeah Armenia who beat Wales 4-2 in Cardiff over the summer um, and who can still qualify themselves they are three points behind Wales in fourth in Group D um, same number of games and then the final game at home to Turkey which sounds arduous because they're really hitting form under their new manager Vincenzo Montella I don't know if you saw their terrific uh, terrific performance against Latvia and that amazing goal from Yunus Akkun Leicester City's new loanee did you see those? Very nice. Did Seek it out. It. Yes. Seek it out. But I mean, the one positive from a Welsh perspective is that mm. Turkey have now qualified. Right. So we'll hopefully be... Mm. Can you be on the beach at the end of a qualifying campaign? Whatever the qualifying campaign equivalent is of a team mm. being on the beach. In hopefully November. Turkey will be there. Is it seasonally dependent as well? Will they be on the ski slopes? In November. Probably not in Turkey. <laughs> Early for that. Probably well. not in Turkey, no. Yeah. Uh, well, no, actually there is skiing in Turkey. Hmm. Yeah. So, uh, well, that's fantastic. And Rob Page, who, again, on Welsh Football Twitter, was widely deemed for the chop ahead of this game, no? Yeah, Rob Page has been fairly widely criticised, who was largely held responsible for Wales's complete non-performance at the World Cup. Um, you know, too much faith in, in fading stars like Bale and Ramsey, not making substitutions quickly enough, not being reactive enough in games when circumstances started to turn against Wales. And... Not a very popular figure, generally speaking, not because he's not a nice bloke, but because, you know, he's not done much to suggest that he is capable of turning things around. And the chief executive of of the Welsh FA, Noel Mooney, suggested pre-game that, you know, his position was under review. And interestingly, a couple of the players came out and, and sort of in a thinly veiled way, criticised Noel Mooney for making those comments and said, Mm. look, we're still behind the coach and, you know, these comments were unhelpful. The last thing we need is our own side to be sort of, you know, taking pot shots at the coach. And and Page was really emotional last night. He's been been in quite combative mood, you know, over the last few days building up to the game. And pre-match, during the Welsh anthem, the cameras are sort of panning along the the players and the, the, the camera settles on Page in the dugout. And he was singing... And uh, I think the anthem got to the chorus and then he just stopped singing and obviously, you know, was kind of looked like quite choked up, you know, sort of like watery eyes kind of thing. Mm. Um, And then after the game as well, he gave an interview to S4C where he was asked about the build up to the game and some of the the pressure he's been under. And again, very emotional. He said, you know, I, uh, I, uh, you know, I won't hide the fact that I get emotional talking about this team and and my sort of commitment to this Mm. job and getting Wales qualified again. So, yeah, lots of... 
lots of emotions around. Yeah, mm. and also in here, Tom, I'm feeling it's well, a little I bit mean, dusty in here. Honestly, honestly, get me talking on Wales and two great knows. finishes, by the way. Yeah. Oh, gorgeous! Two the, terrific like, goal. The second one, like the kind of twisting fish leap. Love it. Yeah. Ha- yeah. Harry Wilson's four. <laughs> it feels like um, I don't know. If, I don't know if you agree, Tom. It was like a bit of a triumph again for sticking with young players over like a prolonged period of time. Mm. There was like a bit of a clamour for like Paul Mullin and Lee Evans to come in, sort of like maybe short-term fixes. But when when you look through that squad, the amount of players in their mid twenties who are sort of around the fifty cap mark, you know, Ethan Ampadu, twenty-three years old, he's got forty-seven caps. Mm. Dan James, twenty-five, he's got forty-seven caps. And obviously, this is something that they've done for a while, from John Toshak onwards, and despite bad results, you know, they do sort of stick to their guns with these young players. Yeah, oh, completely. And it, it felt, I mean, again, we'll have to see how the rest of the, the qualifying campaign pans out, but it felt like a coming-of-age performance in the sense that, you know, we are now in the post-Gareth Bale era. Aaron Ramsey wasn't there last night. You went through the starting eleven, and with a couple of exceptions, every player in the team is either sitting on the substitutes bench in the Premier League or playing in the Championship. The only survivor from Euro 2016 was Ben Davis. Uh, Wayne Hennessy was on the bench. You know, you look at the midfield, Ethan Ampadu, who Tim mentioned, alongside Jordan James, a 19-year-old playing for Birmingham City in the Championship. Right, who got rave reviews. He was absolutely fantastic. Um, and yeah, a special mention for David Brooks, who I thought was absolutely brilliant. There was a bit quite early on in the game where he just sort of casually flicked the ball over the head of Josko Gvardiol, the second most expensive defender in football history, kind of volleyed a pass out to the left-hand side. Harry Wilson, brilliant. And Harry Wilson, who has been on the scene for a long time. Uh, So last night, it was 10 years to the day since his Wales debut. It was also his 50th cap. Um, And he's very often kind of been in the shadow of Bale, particularly as a left-footed, free-kick-taking, attacking player, and Aaron Ramsey. And so last night was him really coming to the fore. But this was very much you know, a, a, a statement victory for this group of players who have lost the, you know, the, the guiding light superstar, Gareth Bale, who would single-handedly get them through matches like this in the past. And I think it, you know, quite apart from the qualifying context, it just augurs really well for this team, largely bereft of, you know, kind of household names to mm. carry on achieving things, carry on qualifying for big tournaments, you know, even without the sort of the, the stardust that, that they had previously. Well, I hope after all that they don't blow it now against Armenia, although both Wales and Croatia still have the potential playoff route that comes from the in no way arcane and indecipherable Nations League playoff repechage. Yes, or do they? Or do they? We're not sure. We're not sure. And that's after a lot of looking at, uh, well, graphs, essentially. Yeah, I mean, hats off once again to Wikipedia and their colour-coded charts on the Euro 2024 qualifying page. It is pretty good, actually. If you look at the Wikipedia Euro qualifying page, and Tom, you directed me to this, and then you scroll a long way down it, uh, you'll find a playoff section and it will give you a pretty clear idea of how that 12-team playoff mechanism will work. Basically, there are four teams from from League A, the top tier, four from League B, and then four from League C, and they have three sets of semifinals. No, six sets of semifinals. I mean, I'm glazing over just well, hearing three, it. Three sets of semifinals. On. I'll move I, on. I treat permutations like transfers, and I think it's it's better just to wait until it happens. Gotcha. Quick word for Croatia, though, Tom. They came into this international break top of the group. They're now third and staring at Wikipedia pages in desperation. Did you have any clue from this game what's gone wrong for them? I think a significant factor was the injuries in attack. So looking at the absentees last night against Wales, 
no Ivan Perisic, no Andre Kramaric, no Bruno Petkovic. So they were missing all of their most experienced attacking players. And as a consequence, you got a kind of classic Croatian performance of lots of possession, you know, consummate control of the ball in midfield, you know, Modric and, and Kovacic put in the strings, but no cutting edge. And they didn't really trouble uh, Wales at all. Hmm. Um, and yeah, and you know, with, with, with Turkey now having qualified and Wales having their destiny in their own hands, it is, it's looking a bit dicey for Croatia. Indeed so. Tim, Sunday night you were watching Spain's 1-0 victory over Norway, a uh, pastime which you probably shared with lots of Scotland fans. Mm, yeah, um, and a couple, they, were, they even had Scottish commentators on the game. <laughs> just, uh... Bursting onto it, Frank Garcia, Gavi looks for it, Ferran Torres to strike it, hits his own man, Gavi finds the corner. How was the game? Exactly as you'd expect. So Spain dominating possession and Norway lumping it forward to to Haaland. Mm. Yeah, the game was mostly about whether Alvaro Morata wouldn't get in the way of a goal. Um, and he did. Which happened <laughs> which happened twice. Right. So there's this uh, interesting moment in the first half where uh, the Norway defender Strandberg hooks across basically into his own net, except that uh, Morata decides to help the ball in from half a yard away. <laughs> But he's offside, <laughs> so the goal gets ruled out. And then in the second half, yeah, so a, a cross comes in and then comes out to Gavi, who scores. But then VAR took five minutes, one of the longest delays I've ever seen, to judge whether Morata was offside for the cross that right. came in and then whether he was interfering in the keeper's eye line from the shot. So it's basically, <laughs> yeah, if Morata could get out of the way, they'd score. And yes, um, this this was given. It was a fairly routine um 1-0 win, which meant that, yes, Spain and Scotland qualified. And right. Norway out for the time being. But, yes, they may also have a Nations League reprieve, which Jack doesn't want to know about. OK. Uh, until it Erling, happens. Erling Haaland has now blanked in four of his last five games. Yeah, I mean, they've got a decent attack, Norway. They've, they've got, um, obviously, Odegaard. Uh, they had young Oscar Bob, who was um, castigated on this podcast by some idiot called Tim a few weeks ago for having uh, a, a name like a silent movie star from the 30s. Mm. Um, I didn't have a clue who he was, but he made his first start for Norway last night. Yeah. And he, he was actually okay. Um, but I thought Norway deserved to lose because um, on the eve of kickoff, they played a, a Sweet Caroline remix. Oh, did they? Which I've never I've never heard anything like it. It was quite disgusting. Um, it was, it was You might be hearing this now because I bet Richard <laughs> Charlie's Googling it. Even as we speak. Honestly, I was appalled, but it's by. It sounded, the sound sounded familiar. Do you and, like the original? Uh, no, I can't stand it. Mm. Um, certainly the way it's been picked up on by everyone, right, including yeah. Norway, yeah. Which, which feels bizarre. But the, but the remix mm. is by, you may remember, a guy called DJ Ertzi. Oh yeah. So he was the Flat Eric. Yeah. No, no, no. He was he was the Hey Baby not? guy. Oh yeah. Hey, hey baby. Oh. Mm. Ah. That's DJ Ozzy. Oh. Who did Flat Eric? <laughs> I don't know. We both Flat Eric that. was. Wow, that's not what I. DJ Wazzo. That Wazzo. was DJ Wazzo. Uh, DJ Wazzo. Charlie. I can't believe people actually went up against him in the quiz. Just when you think about becoming a DJ, you realise all the good DJ names are taken, aren't they? Your yep. Otsies, your and Wazzos. And some of the bad ones as well. And some of the bad ones. Mm. My favourite version of Sweet Caroline, Adrian Clark. I ruined his version at oh, Totally yeah. Karaoke. Oh, right. Well, Jack tried to karaoke. kill him off the mic. But anyway, yeah, Scotland qualified. Woo! Uh, are we excited? They'll do better than last time, you would think, no? Yeah, um, they'll want a good draw. 
I saw them against England last month and they were they were torn apart to be honest by uh. by a mixed England England team. So there's a definite sort of gap in quality when they come up against the big boys. But if they get a good draw, then yeah, for sure. Okay. I mean, they did beat Spain, of course, in this qualifying process. Although, and they, I mean, had things gone a different way, sliding vars and all that. If uh, if that McDominay goal had been given the op- what would have been the opener mm. away in Seville last Thursday. Who knows how that game would have finished instead of the, what was it, 2-0? 2-0. 2-0. Yeah. Oh, I tell you what, uh, Scotland against big boys, they're playing France in a friendly on Tuesday night. Mm. It, it is just a shame that that qualification was achieved in absentia, isn't it? Because the atmosphere at their games has been such a hallmark of their campaign. Mm. You know, I'm sure fans don't care that much. and They've probably still had a good night out, but it would have been nice to do it right. on the field. Yeah. They're not that picky about how they yeah, do that's it these fair, days, yeah. though, are they? Back to back Euro qualifications for the Tartan Army. Scotland through then. Wales back in with a chance. England are all but there. We'll be talking about them very, very shortly. Republic of Ireland, obviously not. Fourth in Group B. They had their fifth defeat in six. At home to Greece, who beat them 2-0. Greece now have moved past Netherlands, three points clear of them, in second spot in Group B behind France, who we mentioned already through. Uh, and oh, this is huge. Monday night, tonight as we record, Netherlands visit Greece, who've only lost one of their last 18 home games. And that's a must-win game for Netherlands if they don't want to in- stop opening Wikipedia tabs. There's a ridiculous situation in this group, talking of backstops and qualifiers, where um, if the Netherlands are still in it against uh, Ireland next month... Mm. It would be advantageous for Ireland to lose that game because uh, they would want the Netherlands Netherlands to qualify. Right. It would give Ireland a better chance of the names dropping out and coming down so that they can get a playoff oh, spot. So they still might get a playoff spot? They need a few teams to qualify automatically. Right. And then they'll get in virtue of their Nations League ranking. If they lose to Netherlands, which but I if, feel they um, might be able to achieve. If Greece get through, that's bad for Ireland. Ah. But if the Netherlands progress, it's good for Ireland. Okay. And of course, Ireland are out, not to play for. So they would rather lose against the Netherlands next month. Good Lord. that scenario, which seems crazy. Wow. I didn't realise that Gus Poyot was Greece manager. Do you know how long he's been there? Since February 2022. I thought this must have happened in the last few months. You've been there mm. ages. Well, they are. They're in um, Nations League C, aren't they, Greece? So they have been on the slide a little bit. Oh, so maybe right, they've okay. been. They've mm. not had the, the juicy fixtures that would. Uh, yeah. You know, bring them next into your... summer will mark twenty years since they did the big one, beating Portugal in the mm-hmm. Euro two thousand and four final. Mm. Oh, one other thing to mention: Luxembourg fans, because bizarrely they they seem to become a kind of niche team for. Totally Football Show listeners to follow. Uh, they still have qualification in their own hands. They're playing Slovakia this evening in Group J. If they win that game and their two remaining ones, which, which are against Bosnia and Liechtenstein, then they're through. Those, that sounds doable, but uh, yeah, let's see. All right, that's enough about all of that. Next up, let's get on to Tuesday night's big game at Wembley, England-Italy. Football is bigger and more complicated than ever before. Just ask VAR. Check complete. It's fine. Perfect. So the Daily Football Briefing is here to help, whether it's the World Cup. It's a kind of face-saving, everyone's happy, no one's a loser. Lionel Messi. As they say, he completed football. 
or Manchester United. I mean, the performances all season have been questionable. That are making you quizzical. The Daily Football Briefing has all the answers you need for every football story that matters, and it does exactly what the name suggests. It's daily, it's brief, and it's all about football. The Daily Football Briefing from The Athletic, available wherever you get your podcasts. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This is the Totally Football Show, part of The Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. England, Italy, Tuesday at Wembley. England, three points clear now at the top of Group C of Italy and Ukraine, who are level in the race for second place. England still not guaranteed qualification then, but Tuesday's game, a must-win affair for the Azuri. James Horncastle joins us now. Hello, James. Hello, Jimbo. Mm, All right. So last time these two teams met in Naples, it was 2-1 England. Might Tuesday be different and why? Well, it will be different, James, because there's a new coach in charge of Italy. Uh, Some players who were available for that game in Naples, which, as you mentioned, Italy lost, are unavailable. They are Nicolo Zaniolo and Sandro Tonali, uh, who were sent home because they're not in the right frame of mind after being questioned by police in relation to this uh, probe into illegal online betting platforms. And some of the star players, Chiesa, for example, is injured. That said, Italy have won two of their three games under Spalletti. The toughest probably being the one against Ukraine at San Siro, where you know having drawn against North Macedonia in, in the first game under Spalletti, that was the most pressurised encounter, I suppose. Uh, you mentioned this is a must-win. Uh, is it? Uh, you know, I mean, ultimately, if they win... England, I don't think it changes too much because England still have very winnable games against Malta and North Macedonia. I don't, ex- I don't expect. No, but from from the point of view of, of getting the other spot and rather than Ukraine taking it, sure. But they they have the edge on head to head, having beaten Ukraine at San Siro. 
they will play them again. Worst comes to the worst, Italy could finish bottom of this group and they would still have a playoff, which, yes, of course, they would like to avoid having lost one against Sweden going into the 2018 World Cup and lost in North Macedonia before the 2022 World Cup. But people seem to have forgotten that by dint of qualifying for the final four of the Nations League, as they kept doing, they have guaranteed themselves a playoff anyway. So, yeah, it's, 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 a, big, it's a big game. But, you know, at the same time, you know, I think uh, Italian football has bigger problems right now. All right. The, uh, <laughs> we're we're going to focus on the national team, though. And obviously it is without, as you mentioned, Zaniolo and Tonali. But of the players that are there, are we beginning to see the first, the first signs of Spalletti ball in, in, in terms of his call-up <laughs> and in terms of the way they played, uh, especially in the second half against Malta, admittedly, you know, asterisk Malta. <laughs> I mean, I think they've played some good football under him already. It's and it's very early to uh, to expect that. You know, I mean, even for the first hour against North Macedonia, I thought they 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 played well. They hit the post, they hit the bar, but you know, everyone ended up seeing that game through the prism of the fact that they conceded three minutes before uh, full time and and ended up drawing. Um, yeah, I mean, they're they're playing four three three, which they they did for the most part of Mancini's reign. Uh, even though Mancini dabbled with playing three at the back uh, towards the end of his his time in charge, um, there are some new faces. Uh, not not entirely new in in that they they'd already made their debuts under Mancini. But for example, Immobile at this moment in time he was not called up because he's had a number of injury problems. So Giacomo Respadori, who who scored in the win against England in the Nations League at San Siro. He's been playing as a number nine. Uh, Moisey Ken played on the left uh, against Malta uh, in Chiesa's absence and played really well. I thought he was involved in both of both of Italy's goals, won the ball back for uh, for both of them. And then there's Giacomo Bonaventura, who feels like the classic. Uh, this is just a cliche of, of, of the narrative around Italian football: the late bloomer, mm. the guy, the, the guy who everyone suddenly appreciates as being a top class player, or as Spalletti called him. Our Bellingham. Did he really? Jack Bonaventura. He did, yeah. Lovely yeah, stuff. Yeah. How important, though, is Domenico Birardi coming back in? Well, it's very important, but, you know, people have just completely underrated this player for, for a long, long time because he's not called Chiesa. Well, he's a better player than Chiesa. Um, and he has been, you know, I mean, ever since he, he scored four goals against AC Milan in one game, what, 10 years ago? I mean, this is a guy who scored more than 100 goals in, in Serie A as one of the best left foots. Uh, in European football and you know if he wasn't still playing for Sassuolo I think people would be saying that this is along with Verratti uh, the best Italian player of his generation you know even scored with his right foot uh, against against Malta so you know he, he is he's a class player um, and he will probably be the the main threat um, to England on Tuesday night uh, mm. at Wembley but you know, it, it's a very different Italy team from the one that, uh, that won the Euros in 2021. You know, that, that doesn't feel all that long ago. But if you think about it, Chiellini retired from international duty when they failed to reach the World Cup. Bonucci's sort of not in the squad because he's been, you know, he obviously was frozen out of the Juventus team and then moved to Union Berlin at the last day of the transfer window. Um, you've got guys who are used to playing in a back three for their clubs, playing in a back four. So, you know, Bastoni and Mancini or Scalvini as it was against uh, against Ukraine. 
Udogie came on, or Udogi came on to make his Italy debut against Malta, having started the season really well for Tottenham. The midfield is kind of two thirds different from the one that beats England at Wembley last time around, in that Verratti is now playing in Qatar, Jorginho is, you know, hanging out in West London. And the attack as well. I mentioned Chiesa being injured as he so often has been over the last uh, 18 months to two years. Immobile, you know, who uh, is so fed up with the criticism. Well, no, he scored against North Macedonia. Oh, did he? Oh, sorry. Okay, right. (laughs) Again, unfairly maligned. This is why... This is why he's been threatening to leave Italy uh, right. over the past week because of people like you, Richardson, yeah. um, who, who forget that he's, he's, he's Capo Caniniere, what, four or five times and just fail to put respect on his name. Mm. Um, so Raspadori and then Berardi, uh, Berardi, who lost his place to Chiesa in the, in the Euros because Chiesa played on the right in that tournament. Insigne was playing on the left. So it's a, it's a, it's a, yeah, we're talking maybe only three players who were part of the Italy, Italy team in 2021, will be uh, part of this one. All right. James, you mentioned the, the victory at the last Euros 2021. That was at Wembley, of course. The, the Italians have quite a tradition of big wins at that venue. Zola, head of the 98 World Cup. Oh, what a goal that was. What a goal. Oof. Fabio Capello, a goal yeah. for all of Waitedham uh, in uh, 19... <laughs> what was that, 73? 73. I think so. Yeah, Can't remember early seventies. Yeah. Do you have a feeling that we might see another one on Tuesday night? Uh, well, I mean, the preparation hasn't been ideal, even though you know, sort of within the camp, I think they feel that they performed well against Malta, regardless of who the opponent was, um, and that uh, that has given the team some confidence in its current kind of setup. Now, I wouldn't put it past Italy um, to, to to win this game. But when the players are training in, in, in an environment where there's a, uh, a paparazzo out there threatening to, to out players uh, who've been who've been betting, um, you know, you can imagine it's it leads to quite a lot of anxiety. Mm. Um, but I, I think the, the thing that's stood out to me over the last few days is just the the reverence that there already is in Italy uh, for for Bellingham. All of the players are being asked about him in a way that I can't remember a Italian players being asked out about an England player of that age. You know, even Kane, I can't remember Kane getting this kind of treatment as, as though, you know, Bellingham is the outstanding player in European football right now. Mm. And, you know, a lot of the, the questions being popped to the likes of, you know, Davide Fratesi, Fratesi, who we haven't mentioned, but Fratesi's the top scorer for Italy, even though he's a midfield player, he's not starting for... For Inter or uh, Italy, but is this super sub who comes off the bench and scores? You know, he he was asked about him. Barella was asked about him. I mean, it's all about it's all about Bellingham. Um, so, yeah, I must say I'm, a, I'm I'm quite proud, James. Mm. Um, you know, to, to to hear people in a country that we've worked in be so uh, so respectful and so admiring of a young a young English player. Well, there you go. Can I finish off with a question from uh, Mr. Crypto? Oh, my God, yeah, okay. No, I'm not going to put any of my money with him. Well, he had another one. It was, uh, has Lewis Ferguson been playing well enough to get a run out in the friendly against France? Bearing in mind, he plays in the same position as Scott McDominate and McGuinnessa, <laughs> who were difficult to dislodge from the starting 11 in his form. Mr. Crypto wants to take on how well Lewis Ferguson's been doing. Well, Lewis Ferguson should be playing for Scotland because it doesn't really matter what position you put him in. 
you know, I mean, this has been the great story about his time at Bologna playing for Thiago Motta, is that he's played as a false nine, he's played off the left, he has played as a number eight. Um, so he's super versatile and it hasn't affected his performances. He's been very consistent. I think he was Bologna's man of the match against Inter where they came back from 2-0 down and drew 2-2. So yeah, he absolutely should be in the team. Um, if they've, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to criticise the coach because Scotland have qualified. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you've got a very versatile player there who um, you could integrate into a starting level regardless of what you think his best position is or not because Thiago Motta has shown it doesn't really, doesn't really matter where you play him. He's, uh, he's an outstanding talent. Magnificent. Very nice, James. Thank you so much. Enjoy the game Tuesday evening and we'll catch up with you again soon. Pleasure. James Forncastle. Just to flesh out that illegal betting platforms probe thing, this has been something that the Turin police have been doing for a while, uh, unrelated to football, but then footballers' names started coming up. And as James mentioned, this paparazzo, doing air quotes here, called Fabrizio Corona, who... You may recall the name because he was blackmailing Serie A footballers back in, well, this is ages ago. This, I think, it was in the noughties that he. David Trezeguet. Giladino and, and Trezeguet. And ended up doing time for it. Basically, he would take indiscreet pictures of them. Adriano was another one. And then, as he would say, he would offer them uh, advantageous prices to buy the photos so that he didn't sell them to publications. Did the same with Berlusconi's daughter. Uh, I think one of the Agnellis as well, he was doing it too. Football, <laughs> football heritage. Yeah, football heritage. Anyway, he now runs a website, a kind of gossip site, and he got wind of the fact that um, Nicola Fagioli, who's not in the Italy team, but has been very much, he's kind of the, the, the thread that the, the investigator's been pulling on, um, that he was gambling, which footballers are allowed to do as long as it's not on their own sport and on authorised, basically legal um, online services and, and and what the suggestion is these guys have been doing is is not using those. Uh, Zaniolo, his lawyer has said that he uh, hasn't been doing any betting, but the suggestion is that that was for for playing poker online and whether that will have any impact. I don't know. The Gazetta this morning very much has Fagioli, the Juventus midfielder, uh, cooperating fully with the inquiry and in therapy because apparently it, well. The suggestions are it's quite an issue for him and for for um, Tonali, who similarly they say is in, intending to cooperate fully, but could be hit with a major, major sanction by the FIGC as a way of sending a bit of a message. But as James was mentioning again, uh, this uh, paparazzo Corona has hinted at the fact that he's going to be dropping further names in the course of the next month. And we'll be bringing Calcio to a halt with Corona, this revelation. Coronavirus. Wow. Yeah. And then say recharacter in the finest Italian football mm. traditions. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, this game, uh, Tim, you'll be going along Tuesday night. Mm, yes. All right. How much trouble would defeat leave England in? Uh, none. They got they got Malta at home next. So okay. Even England wouldn't mess that one up. Okay. Um, yeah, that's a nice little, <laughs> nice little safety net for them. But I, I guess, yeah, from England's point of view, it's um, it'll be the last decent sort of test, competitive test against a good team that they have before the Euros, really. Yeah. South, Southgate talking the other day. Look, we've only got five, six games left before the tournament starts. What um, are the big questions he needs to sort out? Um, well, I think he's got is- he's got issues in each position on the pitch, really. Um, in my mind, I mean, he might not see it that way because he's got people that he's. Earmarking will play come what may, I think. 
like Calvin Phillips, who who someone worked out the other day is now the eighth choice midfielder at Man City. But he didn't kick a ball the other night against Australia, which was Southgate's Carabao Cup team, effectively. Mm. So it looks like he was being set up to start against Italy. And if he does, if I was Calvin Phillips, and there's loads of talk, oh, he needs to get out in January and get some game time so he so he's nails his spot in the Euros, I'd be going absolutely nowhere. Because if he ends up going to West Ham on loan in January and plays his way out of form, then that, that's the only way he'll lose his place. But if he's eighth choice midfield at Man City and still gets in England's first choice team, which, you know, he, prob- he probably will do, there's a real dearth of midfielders. Hence why Jordan Henderson is captain the other night and still in this squad, mm. despite playing in Saudi Arabia. Um, but Southgate doesn't fancy James Ward-Prowse by the look of it. He's dropped Mason Mount. So in his mind, there's a real dearth of midfielders. I thought Trent Alexander-Arnold was really impressive against Australia and has been against pretty inferior opposition, Malta and North Macedonia in um, June. He's a really interesting option for midfield, but it's one of those interesting creative options don't get that extra spot in England's midfield. So hence why Phillips is probably still the man at the moment. Good Lord. Are you looking forward to going along to Wembley? I am looking forward to going along to Wembley. It should be a... Yeah, yeah the, the other night was a little bit underwhelming. My first game covering England at, at Wembley... I was very excited. It was the first time you've been there since 19... First time I've watched England at Wembley since 1992. Wow. And what did you see in 1992? Uh, England 2, Holland 2. Okay. Which was a World Cup qualifier in Graham Taylor's ill-fated campaign. And, uh, yeah, John Barnes was booed but scored a free kick. Is he playing in Saudi Arabia? (laughs) He's playing for Liverpool, I think. And um, Dennis Bergkamp scored a lovely goal. Why was Barnes booed? I think it was one of those where it was sort of uh, seen as underachieving, maybe. Right. Maybe along the same lines that, like, why Frank Lampard got booed. And I was I wrote about this the other night, actually, in terms of how curious it is that some England players get booed and some don't. Because, of course, Henderson was booed yeah. when he was subbed the other night, which yeah. felt felt like quite a thing. Um, and there were all sorts of peculiar reasons. You know, Ashley Cole got booed for infidelity reasons, uh, which is just bizarre when you think about it. Wayne Rooney got booed. And I, was, I can't really remember why. It was one of his last appearances against Malta. He was in midfield. He's already England's record goal scorer at this point and record outfield cap holder. And he got booed. It's a weird phenomenon getting booed for England. Everybody will be booed. I said it in a piece the other day. Jude Bellingham will be, will be booed one day. Think? Well, everyone else is. Uh, I think t- Terry had it. Lampard, maybe Gerrard. I'm sure Beckham would have had some after 98. Yeah. Uh, Barnes, Rooney. They all get it at one point or another. Incredible. I thought the the booing of Henderson was quite refreshing in that it was like morally unproblematic booing. Obviously, you shouldn't boo your own players. That goes Should without saying. It's counterproductive, etc. But given some of the Is more it counterproductive, well, in the long term, might it not have an impact? In the yeah, it's not going to help their performance on the field unless yeah. they're one of those players who use that. But it depends very much on just, the individual, I think. Right. But just generally speaking, fans booing their own players. Is you know mm. is is not felt to be very helpful, right? But I think given the recent context of England booing, like Harry Maguire getting booed for being not in form, is a pretty appalling reason for booing one of your own players. But I felt like the booing of Jordan Henderson was was a reflection of you know, kind of what the nation thinks of his choice to go to Saudi Arabia. I think mm. people, I mean, I'm not you know, you can't know for sure what was in the heads 
of the booers. Right. But it felt like they were expressing disappointment with Jordan Henderson on a personal level, which I think is a disappointment that we all felt mm. when he decided to go to Saudi Arabia. Reinforced by the disingenuousness of his remarks afterwards when he said, oh, I don't know why they're booing me. Mm. Why could that possibly be? You know, He was the one who gave the interview to The Athletic and presumably witnessed the massive fallout. We talked about it on this show. Mm. Um, and he, yeah, for him to say, oh, he made some allusion to, oh, just they're angry at someone playing in a different country. Oh, it's... The, the specifics of it are very relevant there. But Southgate was of the mind that it wasn't, you know, 10,000 people standing up for LGBTQ plus rights. He was of the mind that, you know, people have just got it in for Jordan Henderson and this, right. is, this is a stick that they beat him with, which was, I'm inclined to sort of agree with, really. I don't know. The Henderson-Maguire thing's been going on for a few years now. Hmm. They always get picked. So I feel like this, this is sort of made him sort of cross over into the boo boy territory but i don't think it's people was it just a small minority at wembley was it not, not a true uh, reflection at first it? it was one man who was booing his every touch one man he was really loud but it was one man i don't know if you can hear it on tv but yeah when his when his number went up you knew it was coming it was i don't know a couple of thousand but. brilliant all right, uh, that's the situation ahead of england italy on tuesday of course we'll be looking back on that in thursday's show next up though We'll get a quick check on what the hot stories are in South America as World Cup qualifying proceeds over there. And also hear about these shock developments at Manchester United. Hello there, Ayo here. Listen to me on the Athletic Football Podcast, where we go deep on the biggest stories in the game, providing insights and analysis from the very best journalists in the business. You won't get this anywhere else. Available now on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places. Just search The Athletic Football Podcast now. We're sponsored for this episode of The Totally Football Show by Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform helping you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. It's your perfect teammate, the Sutton to your Shearer, the Heskey to your Owen, the Mane and Firmino to your Salah. Whether you're selling I belong to Jimbo t-shirts or Max and Barry half and half scars, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, which is up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. Plus, you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And what's more, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 support is there to help your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Now, because you listen to The Totally Football Show, you can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash totally, all in lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash totally to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's S-H-O-P-I-F-Y dot com slash totally. You're listening to the Totally Football Show with James Richardson, the Sports Podcast Awards Soccer Podcast of the Year. Full-time Europe will be up on Monday. That, of course, is the Athletics Women's Football Podcast covering the latest weekend of action in the WSL. Merseyside Derby, return of Beth Mead. Pretty key return it was as well. She helped Arsenal to their first win of the season. Anyway, you can hear 
All about that and so much more in full-time Europe. Jack. James. Commibol. Pretty good. Got World Cup uh, qualifying 2026 round four. Is that right? Three is just finished. Four oh. is in the next couple of days. Okay, so we're on to round four in the next few days. What are the hot stories? Uh, Argentina are the only side with a 100% record now. Uh, still haven't conceded a goal in their three games. Emi Martinez, the last goal he conceded was in the World Cup final. Yeah, which is a good stat, but it's even more amazing when you think about, you know, it's not on paper a bulletproof defence. You've got Nicolas Otamendi, who's, you know, was seen as quite an erratic player 10 years ago, and you've pair him with Christian Romero you know obviously World Cup winning players so mm. a bit of respect is due but you don't look at that side and think wow that's definitely going to keep a clean sheet every game so fair play to uh, Scaloni for that continued success Brazil dropped points at home to Venezuela yeah this was a bit of a shock yeah I mean Venezuela and Bolivia historically are the two teams you just you know pick up four wins against um, so yeah the fact they lost they were Pretty wayward, really. They Gabriel scored his first Brazil goal from a corner, and then they were just very wasteful. Um, great goal from Venezuela, Ed- right. Eduard Bello with a kind of tumbling overhead kick. It was a beautiful. Yeah, yeah, because Eduard Bello, I think a lot of us read that, and producer Charlie immediately chipped in. So he's basically falling backwards and and, and volleys it over his head. Uh, and producer Charlie tweeted uh, Bello Horizontal. Which very is really good. nice. Got is no it, love on the site. Got a paltry one like on one the like. site for me on his Twitter. Anyway. But Charlie let it be known that he would, you know, deserve more. It's a great goal. Great, goal. great goal. And then you had the spectre. Obviously, Brazil failing to beat Venezuela at home is mm. naturally a bit of a uh, puts them in real jeopardy of not making it as well. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, they could. They could stumble multiple times and still get there with their eyes closed. But so there was this scene at at full time of Neymar. I don't know if you saw this kind of got some fan chucked a packet of popcorn at him as he was heading into the tunnel. Does that have significance? I'm not sure. Probably not intentionally, but Mm. funnily enough, Pipoquero, which means popcorn seller, also has a connotation in football, which is someone who kind of lets the game pass them by a, a luxury player or someone who... Uh, isn't always involved. So there was probably a layer of meaning that the thrower hadn't fully comprehended. I mean, it was a full packet of popcorn, so perhaps he'd been keeping it. It He or she had been keeping it, hadn't been tempted to eat the popcorn because he knew it'd be a... That's fabulous, though, if they did, if they'd gone for, you know, targeted... Obviously, booing your own fans is never a good thing, Tom, but throwing popcorn... Mm. We can make an exception for Similarly Neymar, metaphorical protest. You know, yeah. Dutch fans throwing a chocolate leg or Unlikely like to that. hurt you, a packet of popcorn yeah. has that in its favour. Yeah. But Neymar was incensed, and it's kind of created this um, slight uh, discourse afterwards about how Brazil should learn to love Neymar and his kind of teammates are defending him. And it's a very um, on-off relationship there. Is Neymar similarly viewed in Brazil these days? I would say... To to his image over here. Broadly speaking, it's a lot more positive, um, particularly when he's playing for Brazil. So you'll see, um, I mean, in the last World Cup, there's kind of... There's... There's been a movement to show him public support and what kind of very symbolic stuff like everyone changed their Twitter profile picture to be a picture of Neymar. And I think there's, broadly speaking, a defensiveness about how he's viewed here because obviously his record for Brazil is 
pretty unimpeachable. And there's also a feeling that he's been a bit unlucky and that, you know, Brazil's biggest failings over the last decade have come when he's not there. So he missed the 2014 World Cup final, uh, sorry, the World Cup semi-final against Germany. Um, and when Brazil finally did win a trophy, the Copa Melec in 2019, he was injured. So there's this kind of gap on his trophy cabinet, as it were, that mm. I think a lot of Brazilians would like field. But that said, there is also... You can put the popcorn <laughs> Indeed. There is also, you know, a, a minority, I would say, that feel he is uh, everything that's wrong with kind of modern football, which, okay. yeah. But anyway, there's going to be some changes uh, for Brazil who play uh, Uruguay away, Marcelo right. Bielsa's Uruguay. Marcelo Bielsa's new side. And there's, yeah, I mean, in the fullback positions for Brazil, so this is Tuesday night, it's looking like it's going to be Carlos Augusto, Inter Milan's second choice left wing back, and Jan Cotto, who plays on loan at Hirona from Man City, young oh. Brazilian Obviously, Brazilian play for, play right. for Brazil. But a 21-year-old who's kind of... I saw him at the Under-17 World Cup a few years ago, and he was really good then. Hmm. And he's, uh, yeah, looks like he's going to get his senior debut. So Uruguay's wingers could fancy their chances against right. two rookies. Well, 10 teams in South American qualifying. Six of them go through automatically. Mm -hmm. Six of 10. Yeah. And then the other one gets a playoff against Oceana? Yes. Oceana. So you generally get the South American team in the playoff going through so yeah effectively probably seven out of ten actually make it to you'd, the World you'd Cup, fancy your chances yeah and brazil uruguay uruguay brazil is tuesday night tuesday night early hours wednesday morning uh yes very early hours but if you want a date for your diary yeah brazil v argentina is the 21st of november Ooh. Uh, so that's the next international break get the popcorn in as they say nice and on neymar i can't claim to have watched much of slash any of his games in Saudi Arabia, but the clips that I've seen does look really bleak. Like he's obviously put a bit of weight on, even more so than he had on him when he was last seen in a PSG shirt. The stadiums aren't always full. The standards obviously pretty poor, and he's not the player he was. He thinks he still is, and we saw this latterly at PSG. He thinks he can still spring past twenty something fullbacks from a standing start and he can't but he still tries anyway and it kind of feels like he's sort of in club football at least like this is his final form like he was always going to end up playing here it kind of feels like this trajectory some players have ended up in Saudi Arabia almost against their wishes and I'm not sure Neymar would ideally want to be there but it it does feel kind of fitting in a strange way that that is what he has become but that feeds into the brazil stuff because you get the sense that he's like he's desperate to be loved at this stage and kind of appreciated for the player he has been and yeah with brazil it's always just there's always a psychodrama lurking kind of on the fringes and i think neymar's kind of last stand as it were heading into the next world cup is gonna yeah, potentially override quite a lot of things. But it's a bit of a kind of Wayne Rooney syndrome, right? right. In the Definitely. case that he is like the one unquestionably world-class player that mm -hmm. Brazil have mm. and has been for a little while and so personalises the team's fortunes in a way that, that Rooney did for yeah. so long. It's like Tim says, stick around long enough and you'll get booed. There you go. Mm. We'll wrap up this show uh, as soon as possible then. Uh, in fact, just one thing left to do, and that'll be up next, and it concerns Manchester United. 
Hi, I'm Ian Irving, host of Talk of the Devils, the Athletics podcast dedicated to Manchester United. Twice a week, I'm joined by Andy Mitten, Carl Anker and Laurie Whitwell as we bring you the very best insight from inside Old Trafford. You'll get all you need to know on transfers, tactical analysis, dare I say takeovers and much, much more as we follow United home and away. You're not getting this anywhere else. So search for Talk of the Devils and listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Say one thing to do, but actually two, because today's the 16th of October, and on this day, 55 years ago, Manchester United became the first English club to compete in what was called then the Intercontinental Cup. These days, what would you call it? The Club World Cup? Mm -hmm. Yeah. This was all the way back in 1968, numbers fans. It was a two-legged affair back then. They drew 1-1 away with Estudiantes of Argentina, in an ill-tempered affair. In fact, the Pathé News reported it thus. For 90 unglamorous minutes, the good name of sportsmanship on the soccer field was smeared beyond recognition. Estudiantes' goal, by the way, scored by Juan Ramon Veron, father of Juan Sebastian. Uh, then Manchester United lost 1-0 at Old Trafford. And thus Estudiantes were the world champions. Woo! I have to say, like, the dark arts isn't really captured in the footage. Not really, no. We had a look at this. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the only real dirty play that occurs is, is George Best punching someone in the face. Yeah. There's For a which great, he got sent off. There's mm. a great clip, I think, from that one of those two games of um, Best uh, dribbling past an opponent who basically just tries to take a chunk out of his thigh. Um, and the referee blows for a foul and best responds by picking the ball up and walking over to his opponent and sort of presenting it to him, like reaching out. That's that's the thing you're after, mate. Not my, you know. <laughs> not my thigh. Not, not my thigh. There's some lovely Bobby Charlton dribbling in this game, by the way, as mm. well. Yeah, I mean, the they the were well. mm. like notoriously violent, those Intercontinental Cup mm. games around that period. And it was very often Estudiantes who were in the final, who were one of the most violent football teams of all time. And in a kind of, not just, you know, there's a, there's a, to draw a distinction between different types of violence, there's a kind of like Wimbledon crazy gang violence. Mm. It's like, it's kind of like an open, Cartoon. we are going to kick you around, right. but you know, it's all good natured at the end of the day, whereas the studiantes were very sneaky and there's right. all sorts of stories about the things that they used to get up to. And it was, I think one of the like reasons what? why... Oh, like um, carrying pins around so they could sort of stab opponents, looking up tragedies in the personal lives of players on the opposition team and then just, you know, whispering, how's your auntie? Popcorn. Uh, you know, while you're waiting for a corner. Popcorn, you know, you name it. In the days before Wikipedia well, say, that's, that's no mean thing. <laughs> yeah. Going to the British library to kind of, you know, <laughs> yeah. that's quite something. <laughs> anyway, uh, well, it proved effective in 1968 as they conquered Man United and won the world crown. Anyway, speaking of Man United and indeed conquering them in a manner of speaking, uh, after almost a year of Glazer dithering, it looks like we might finally have some movement on ownership. This weekend, you probably saw Sheikh Yassim of Qatar pulling out of the running to buy the club. And Sir Jim Ratcliffe of Manchester, apparently on the verge of completing a deal, but for only 25%, a minority stake. How does that work? Does this represent a new start? What's it mean for the stadium? Adam Crafton joins us now. Adam, Sheikh Yassim out, Jim Ratcliffe partially in. How big is this news? 
Um, well, it's big in that it's just been going on and on for so long. You know, it's almost back to the World Cup when Manchester United announced that there would be a strategic review. Um, there was never a commitment in that statement that the club would be sold. It was, you know, we're going to explore strategic alternatives, talking about things like the club needing to do significant work on its stadium and infrastructure. And they'd essentially, they didn't have money to do that within the club and clearly you know we we all know the story of the glazer ownership is that they were never going to be putting their own money into kind of a billion pound redevelopment of a stadium or building a new stadium or whichever way they went about it i think the outcome is probably not what people expected throughout the process and that you know you've had very very confident briefings throughout from the qatari side from the sheikh jassim bid but also we're not quite sure yet whether those original questions, those questions of investment in the stadium, investment in infrastructure, are necessarily what this deal will mean. Because the deal, if it's ratified at a board meeting on Thursday, will be, I think, 25% of the club for, for Jim Ratcliffe, for Ineos. And in return for that, he appears to be getting control of the club's football operations, which is a very unusual thing for a, a minority partner of a football club to, to basically be able to make the decisions about the football side of the business, which arguably defines so much of the rest of the business's ability to succeed. So it's not quite what we expected. I think if you were to tell Manchester United fans six months ago, this is what it would end up as, there'd probably be some exasperation. If you were to have told them 18 months ago that you would have you know, one of the richest guys in, in the world, in, in Jim Ratcliffe, coming in, as part of you know what is being suggested as a phase takeover, so you know the starting pistol, I suppose, for moving the Glazers out of the club, then I think there'd have been a lot of optimism. But as ever with the the way Manchester United work, kind of the way they've done it and how slow it's been, has led it to feel like a more frustrating process. So essentially, what you're saying then is that the Glazers will still own seventy five percent of the club, but Sir Jim Ratcliffe will run it for them. Kind of. I mean, the Glazers don't own 100% of the club as it is. I think I think that figure is 96? more like... 96? I think that's of the voting rights. Oh, and, okay. then you, and then of the shares, there's sort of institutional investors and private shareholders and all that kind of thing because it's listed on the, the New York Stock Exchange. Um, so it will bring those percentages closer. Um, but what we don't yet know is how it will all shake out in terms of which kind of shares... Uh, Jim Ratcliffe will buy which voting rights they will ne- will necessarily have. Hopefully, that will come in time. In terms of the transparency, it will have to because United are listed on the stock exchange. But yes, clearly, you know the, the majority shareholders. Um, it looks like will still be the Glazers, and they will be essentially delegating the responsibility of running the football operations at a football club. Okay. In terms of things that would require a major investment like stadium redevelopment, what does that mean? Again, I'm I've been like I'm very cautious about this whole thing of kind of speaking on behalf of these billionaires that don't do very much talking for themselves and that there's a lot of kind of briefings and counter briefings and the reality is I think with those kind of issues around pledges of what's going to be invested into stadiums and major infrastructure feel like they kind of need to say it themselves right I think there's been there was some reporting yesterday um, suggesting that they, they would be prioritizing investment in the team and staff changes and perhaps the training ground before getting on to Old Trafford there was some other reporting in the Times today to say 
that they'd like to try and make Old Trafford into a 90,000 stadium. Now, that's clearly work that would be, I think, massively encouraged. You know, Old Trafford is one of the biggest stadiums in the country, but it's not one of the most modern or progressive ones, you know, when you compare it to the ones that have been built over the last 20 years or so. And that's, I think that's, you know, from every kind of experience, it's, you know, I think the people who have been going to Old Trafford for 40 years will say it all looks a bit run down, but also investors that see huge upside in hospitality suites and the money that can be made from, from those kind of experiences also look at Old Trafford and say that's not good enough. I don't think it's as simple as sometimes people talk about stadiums only in terms of fan experience or hospitality experience, but I think at Old Trafford it, it just all needs a bit of updating. Adam, I'm sure a lot of United fans would like to have seen an outright transfer of, of ownership here and Sir Jim coming in for just 25%. Is that still broadly then to sum up good news or is there the, the spectre of this just making things more complicated in terms of taking the club in the direction it needs to go? I think it's definitely complicated. Um, you know, you remember when Arsenal had that situation where you had the Kronkers and, and Usmanov for quite a long time and it can lead to this feeling of conflicting agendas within a club. Also, whose fault is it if something goes wrong? And are you just going to have a situation where one side starts briefing, well, it's all the Glazers, and then the other side say, no, he's come in with this idea, they were going to run football operations, now they've messed it up. You know, So I think that's going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting as well because if Jim Ratcliffe is on this journey towards phased a phased control, if you like, of the club, if not a full, full takeover of 100%, then he will need to, to sort of start to develop a trust and transparency with the fan base, which means he will, I imagine, be communicating much more than the Glazers have done over the last 15 years. And he will, I think, you know, if you look at what Ch the Chelsea owners have done since they've come in, they've quite often referred to how difficult their inheritance was, right, when trying to explain some of the mistakes perhaps that they've made since then. And Jim Ratcliffe's not going to be able to do that if he's in a business partnership with the Glazers. He can't just come out and say, well, this was wrong, this was wrong, this was wrong, and Joel did this and Avi did that. It would, it would be very, very messy. So I think Manchester United fans are almost going to have to bite their tongues a little bit when Jim Ratcliffe maybe starts doing interviews and says, you know, these are good business partners for me. We're working together. We're trying to achieve stuff together when probably they just want to hear these guys have been a disaster for 20 years. Indeed so. Adam, thank you so much for that. Look forward to the, uh, the, the next set of developments. Pleasure. Thanks, guys. Adam Crafton. Very nice. So Jim is a man who's uh, achieved great success and some of it in the sporting fields as well. Tom, I'm looking at you because his niece team after some seasons of struggling to you know get their ducks in order are currently absolutely flying in league aren't they they are although i would caveat that by saying that this is pretty much the first time we have seen them fly since he took over so he took over in 2019 mm. uh, and there was big talk of nice becoming like the psg of the mediterranean coast and you know building a really strong club to compete with psg for for the league and title and European honours, etc. And it just hasn't happened. Mm. Uh, they've spent a reasonable amount of money, haven't finished any higher than fifth. They've gone through a very significant number of coaches. Patrick Vieira, Lucien Favre came back at, at one point and then, and then promptly left. And then what's happened over the last sort of couple of seasons is that they've decided to kind of water down 
the ambitiousness of, of the spending and they hired over the summer a young Italian coach, Francesco Farioli, who is working with a squad largely bereft of star players uh, and they've been brilliant. Uh, hmm. Currently second in Liga, unbeaten. They've won away at PSG. They've won away at Monaco. So currently are better placed than they have been you know, ever since Ratcliffe arrived. But I, I don't think you'd find many Nice fans who would tell you that his tenure has been an unqualified success. All right, then. Well, we shall see if this part ownership gets ratified on Thursday. When, coincidentally, we'll be back doing another Totally Football show. That's it for today's edition. Many thanks to you, Tim and Tom and Jack and Charlie and Rachel, a new listener. Uh, do join us on Thursday and have a great time in the meanwhile from all of us here. It's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Discover bonus video content by searching for The Totally Football Show on YouTube and see the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Athletic.